And this is the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM. Your local community radio station, your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. Stefan Hostetter's hair is tufting off his crown like a He, he looks bird? like baby... No, like baby Maggie from Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> Little baby Maggie. Little baby Maggie. Um, Stephen Franklin, Erwin Hostetter, David Christian, Erwin Hostetter. Um, Can you remember my name? We've only been doing this for several years at this point. Well, I don't know if you just noticed, but I just messed up Stefan's name and mine. <laughs> um, Lauren, Lauren Elizabeth Pomegranate Latour. That's it. We got it. We're winning. Diving into the Greek underworld to retrieve her lost husband. <gasps> oh, my God. Literally any, I would take any husband at this point, lost or otherwise. Let's be real. As long as they're sweet like the granite. You know what? I don't even need that. Oh. I can pass on that. Okay. Any bitter old man will do. Stefan is speaking with documentarians who have, have they released the documentary? No, they're currently working to fundraise uh, for it. Fundraising for the documentary, Saracura, the film about an Afro-Indigenous tribe in Brazil trying to protect the Amazon. And what are you discussing? We're discussing their, their background as participatory filmmakers, what it means to make a participatory film, which was interesting. It's like a, a way of activist film, filmmaking that I hadn't uh, heard, heard of in the, in, the, in the work that they have done previously in terms of like how, how they got connected, how it's all happening, and, and the movement they're trying to build. Do you care to butcher the names of the filmmakers now or you want to just leave that mysterious and we can hear you butcher them when you interview them i we nailed their names it is uh so we'll be interviewing poet and filmmaker lena manymakeway and sorry it's poet and filmmaker lena manymakeway and oh my god grassroots crime <laughs> activists I mean, it's an L and W. That's like yeah very similar letters l and w they just i'm gonna start this again um Interviewing poet and filmmaker Lena Minimakeley and grassroots climate activist Matthew Edissary, uh, who are the two folks who are working to make this a reality. Edissary. I feel like you pronounced that differently before. I think I pronounced it correctly this time. Okay. And we're going to do some climate news and get into that interview. First, Stefan, there was a was there a request from a listener to discuss this particular podcast? Not this there one. There was indeed. Yes. Um so we had, we had a listener send in a, a request for us to chat about a, a po episode of The Great Simplification, which is a podcast I've heard a couple times before. Uh, it's quite quite an interesting one, if you like long interview podcasts. And this one was with uh, a man named Leon Simmons, who's a climate researcher and was the co-author of the paper Global Warming in the Pipeline uh, with renowned climate scientist James Hansen. We probably honestly covered this paper, and we definitely covered some of the worries that are established in this paper before. But I will say, listening to this hour uh, and a half conversation, I learned a lot. Um, so His mind is blank with the amount of information that he has learned. Okay, so the podcast episode uh, mostly focuses on Simmons's theory and worry, uh, about aerosols, most specifically sulfur, and how recent the succe recent uh, successes in environmental policy to remove uh, sulfur dioxide from shipping may be behind the incredible scary jump in ocean temperatures, loss of sea ice, and potentially even uh, burning of Canadian forests that we saw last year. Basically, the the fear here is that the reason for those scary graphs that we covered all of last year, which uh, again showed us being entirely off regular earthly rhythms of sea ice and sea warming and things like that could be due to the legislation that removed sulfur dioxide from shipping. And what's interesting about this is that despite shipping only accounting for about 10% or so of sulfur dioxide that was released every year, the fact that it's released over the ocean and the fact that there aren't a lot of other things that are creating particulate matter over the ocean means that we actually got way more warming than you'd expect from just a 10% reduction. And and I should preface this all by saying one of the things 
to know about sulfur dioxide is that it is actually a global coolant. It's a pollutant, but has a cooling effect uh, on the on the world. And so the fact, sorry, Lauren, you look, do you have a question? We reduce tanker traffic pollution or pollution resulting from tanker traffic. And as a result of having less aerosol pollution, we now are feeling increased effects of greenhouse gas pollution. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And yeah. And, and, and we sort of always knew that sulfur was a, or sulfur dioxide was, did have this cooling effect. But what we didn't know was to what extent it was having a cooling effect. And so the big worry here is that if 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 Simmons is right, he warns that there could be even that like basically the big jumps we saw last year could be getting worse in the coming years, a because all of the ways that the sulfur is still in the atmosphere and it could like it's only been three years, it could keep getting worse. But also b, we're moving away from a we're moving into an El Nino cycle, which is when the earth naturally warms. And so we are expect so it's possible that as th- as this year carries on that like some of the really scary stuff we saw last year might just get like even more and even worse at a speed so much faster than like the general models predicted because there was all this warming already baked in to the amount of CO2 and other things we've done to the earth but we are hiding basically because of this artificial cooling effects of uh, of particulate matter and of sulfur dioxide specifically. And, and that this small reduction, because it was over the oceans, was actually like a lot of that was creating a lot of clouds or a lot of other stuff that was bouncing off way more heat than we thought, basically. And so... What this means and why I think that we as the climate movement should should know about it beyond it just being like, ah, scary, which I think is something to at least keep around, is more actually that like, A, in the next few months, we'll sort of know if this is true. Like, it's this isn't going to be one of these theories that takes 15 years to bore out. Like, if he's right, we will see things continue to go weird in the next few months. Like, by June, we'll have a good sense of whether or not this interpretation of the data is correct or not. And so we should be preparing for how we respond to that if that is in fact the case. Because I'm B, if things do get weirder much more quickly, then we will see, I think, an unlocking of opportunity, but also of potential like very bad re- responses, right? Like if things go super sideways this year, if because of these reasons, you can see how quickly a case for geoengineering could come up or or other things that we don't want. And so like we as a climate movement should be prepared to maybe have some conversations about much more drastic reductions of emissions or other ways to deal with this much more quickly than we might have imagined. If in fact, this theory on how this works is true. Stefan... Yeah, this is sorry. not the news I needed on Wednesday, yeah. February the 7th at 8 p.m. I've had approximately one pint of Guinness. And as a result, it's making it really difficult for me to process this information. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just it's. Listeners, it's all so bad all the time. And I don't know what to tell you. Lauren, we're just gonna we're just gonna hire mongooses to take care of the snakes. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Get make make big, 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 big ice cubes to drop in the ocean. That will fix the problem. It's gonna be fine. Don't worry about the sulfur. Don't worry about the carbon. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And then like I don't know. At one point you referenced you're like and like this is like an El Nino year and I'm like I'm sorry hasn't it been an El Nino year every year for the past 10 years tell me a year when it hasn't been an El Nino year point it out Oh yeah it's been, it's been it's been El Ninoing for like our entire lives I think And obviously it isn't <laughs> I'm sure all of my like physical geography professors in in university would be like Lauren did you not listen during my lecture Sorry Dr. Levesque no I didn't Um like it feels like every year is an El Nino year. Obviously, that's not the case. That's not how that works. 
I think it's because even when there's El Nino years, it's still warmer than it's supposed to be. So everyone's like, and it's not even El Nino. So they're just always talking about it. It's right. We're always yeah. talking about it. Yeah, exactly. My oh understanding my is that last year was a La Nina year. La Nina. We're moving towards an El Nino. It's a little girl year. Next year's a little little boy year. Yeah, we're relying yeah. on like quick Google search results here. Well, and uh, and the guy saying it in the podcast I listened to. So I'm. Hmm. He yeah. seemed to know what is up. Men on podcasts are always right. Write that down. Him specifically, he wrote a paper with James Hansen. This guy seemed to know his stuff. He he hopes he's wrong, and we can all hope he's wrong, and we'll know in a few months. And this isn't an indictment of the progressive movement, though I do love to rag on us. Uh, it's it if the last few years of, for instance, within the so-called Canadian context, the wildfires or any indication, we're actually not all that primed as a movement to absorb the energy and the fury and the despair of a populace that is experiencing these these tragedies and these crises. So even like the prospect of experiencing another summer of like intense terrifying warming and the brutal effects of that as a result of something like this 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 loss of of aerosol matter um this combination with the with with the el nino effect it's like great we're not even equipped as a leftist movement to absorb this new energy and absorb this new fury and this potential new population of people who are galvanized around the issue of climate change because they're experiencing the effects firsthand it's like great we're <laughs> oh my goodness i don't want to speak too, too much, but it's like we're an impotent movement who already can't bring these people on and make use of them and make them feel like they're powerful and help them plug into avenues of change and, and leverage their power within their community. So it's like we're all just sitting here being like, well, it's February and I know by the time August comes around, it's going to be real bad and I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that to me, yeah, ex like it, it to me, all of that goes to just the the need to figure out how to harness the weird like in them in actually one of the things they reference in the podcast is the super unusual forest fires in canada last year like that's one of the things they're like oh yeah that was a very weird impact as well i think as this happens consistently there will be guaranteed more and more people as you said who are there to be brought onto the movement and the question is can we figure out how and i think that's the challenge for all of us is to figure out how we, we've really struggled as a leftist progressive movement to we, we mobilize well, we get people out to the action, but we don't do a very good job of actually meaningfully organizing those people in the in the aftermath. And part of that is our fault because we're not skilled up as organizers. But part of it is because we um, I don't know, it's just this sociological phenomenon of the fact that people aren't primed to engage in community organizing. People aren't primed to engage in their community full stop, period. We all want to like, sure, I'm down to go to the action, but at the end of the day, I want to go home and, and, and be on my phone and watch TV and like maybe hang out with a friend. We're just not, we're not very good at engaging with our communities in a real tangible way. So, um, and and I feel like that's that's a problem that the left is really feeling. We're okay at mobilizing people. We're okay at getting people out to the march in opposition to inaction on climate, but we're not actually good about absorbing those people and then empowering them to take action at, at a political level, either municipally or provincially or even federally, um, to then sort of galvanize that energy and translate it into real political power um, and change. All right, we're going to move on to news. All right, so the Associated Press is reporting that companies as large as McDonald's, Walmart, Costco, Burger King, Whole Foods, Kellogg's, and Coca-Cola are benefiting from unpaid prison labor. At the Louisiana State Penitentiary specifically, which used to be a slave plantation, in a state where 64% of prisoners are black, Inmates are leased out to corporations and are subject to punishments if they refuse to work. Two out of three prisoners in the U.S. are likely to be forced laborers. Washington, D.C., meanwhile, is moving closer to passing a bill that will create more prisoners, with broad language around drug-related loitering and cracking down on retail theft. And the U.S. has also been further criminalizing homelessness while cutting social services. That would prevent homelessness. It's incredible and distressing that this is allowed to happen. And the fact that we are getting these stories as well as the ones we've seen recently in regards to weakening of child labor laws across the U.S. 
are examples of how sort of the capital owning class fight back when there's a tight labor market. Like one of the reasons why I think you're seeing all these things is that you know the no one wants to work anymore class of people were unhappy about having to pay living wages to their workers and so they went out to find other options basically and the same can be seen here in Canada with the foreign temporary worker program which was expanded into new industries all while the government you know has refused to hold up to its agreement to give migrants a path to regularization and so if we're going to live in a just world, we have to live in a world where all workers are protected. And and to me, that's why I think as environmentalists, and to go back to your point um, earlier, Lauren, about galvanizing real power, is that we need to be paying a lot of attention to what Sean Fain and the United Auto Workers are calling for. Um, so for those who don't know, they proposed that as many unions as possible line up their bargaining with the UAWs for 2028 with basically the idea of setting the stage for a potential general strike and a proposal like that you know you could imagine then actually getting uh, the kinds of reforms that are generational reforms that i would say you haven't seen anywhere in the United states since probably the 30s um and here in canada probably since healthcare, if i had to choose one but like all of these issues are aligned and we need to find a way to build as much power as possible to have any hope pushing back. And so like this kind of opportunity is sort of the one that I think we need to focus on because, or like the idea that we're allowing prisons to for-profit prisons can farm out people to for-profit companies for like cents on the dollar or perhaps nothing at all is I can't swear, but so messed up. Laura. Well, yeah. And like like you said, it's like at the end of the day, um, the labor movement struggles to have a leg to stand on as long as um, the capital class has this population of like specifically for if we're referring to the states, I don't I don't know what the percentage in, in Canada in so-called Canada is, unfortunately, but like as long as they have this 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 class of indentured laborers numbering in the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of mil or like millions, potentially not hundreds of millions, obviously, but like in the hundreds of thousands to fall back on, it's going to be extremely difficult for the labor movement to be able to um, leverage any kind of meaningful amount of pressure unless, like you said, Stefan, they they go down this sort of like path that, that Sean Fain um, not 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 Sinn Fein um, has sort of outlined as a possibility around a, a generalized strike, and I mean that would be so exciting, especially not only for a country like the states, but like a country like Canada, where like actually, if you look province by province, a significant amount of the labor force is unionized and does have that protection. And obviously, like wildcat strikes and generalized strikes are 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 difficult to coordinate and risky but there is safety in numbers in that and like that's that's the whole that's the premise of a labor movement you know what i mean if we do this together if we have these ties of solidarity and we're willing to stand as a united front we actually we wield a lot of pressure against the capitalist and against the ruling class um but it takes um not only does it take a lot of courage and a lot of vision on on the part of labor leaders it also takes a lot of um sorry to reuse these words, but like trust and solidarity and like meaningful connection and strong relationships built within these labor unions, which I feel, again, I'm, I'm, I'm outside of the labor movement. I'm maybe not speaking from an informed place, but it feels like hasn't really been fostered in recent years. So in Canada, like I said, we're, we're lucky we have a slightly stronger labor movement than, than they do in the States, but um, there's still a long way to go when it comes to nurturing that kind of trust and that kind of faith and that kind of involvement and commitment and being like down for the cause um, on behalf of your fellow workers um, than has maybe existed at, at, at previous points. Um, D. Smog is reporting that the American Petroleum Institute funded climate research as early as 1954, quickly understanding that their product was a threat to our civilization. D. Smog writes, quote, 
It reveals a picture of a much more nuanced, closely connected world of science and the frontiers of scientific discovery than the oil industry has admitted to. In addition, despite being warned about the potential climate impacts of CO2 in 1954, 35 years later, numerous members and sponsors participated in a multi-million dollar campaign attacking climate policies aimed at tackling global warming and promoting denial of the science they themselves had helped to fund. So that's 1954 now. Soon we're, soon we're going to learn they, they knew about climate change before they first invented uh, coal engines. All right, so the, the narwhal has obtained documents indicating that the Ford government in Ontario is planning to allow for land to be expropriated for development projects before they pass environmental review. Emma McIntosh and Fatima Syed write, quote, The move to explicitly allow appropriation of land before obtaining certain approvals is aimed at preventing potential court challenges from bogging down construction of flagship provincial projects like Highway 413, the Bradford Bypass, and new transit lines. And to enable what the government says the government is already doing, what the document says the government is already doing, despite uncertainty about whether it's legal. The government's internal estimates suggest that the move could shave 6 to 18 months off the timeline for a major infrastructure project. And finally, Enbridge is planning to lay off 6% of its workforce to reduce operating costs. I, I wish us all the hope that we all find someone who loves us as much as Doug Ford loves highways. You know, and maybe we don't have to dive down to find our pomegranates to do that. But man, like the number of things Doug Ford will do to get highways built and to ultimately serve the sort of developers who are along those routes is bonkers to me. Here's the thing. I'm less concerned with finding somebody who like loves highways as much as as much as Doug Ford loves highways and more somebody who is interested in funding highways the way Doug Ford is. Um, that's, that's more so in the year of our Lord, 2024, it's the, it's the funding mm. that I personally am interested in. Right. I mean, as, as, that's as the only way to live. Highway. Right. Yeah. It's only way, it's only way to live, uh, not in a small one bedroom <laughs> apartment. And yes. honestly, yes. I have a partner and we still live in a small one bedroom apartment. So maybe that won't save us either. But um, anyways, there is a really deep dive that the Narwhal did about this, and I, I'm sure it'll keep coming out. So I do recommend checking that art out. And yeah, I think we're probably running out of time, right, Dave? All right. We're going to go to a music break and return with Stefan interviewing the documentarians behind Sarakura, the film. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, the Breach Show, and the Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. As previewed earlier on the show, my name is Stephen Ostener, and I am here with the two folks working on Sarakura, the film. This is poet and filmmaker Lena Manimekle and grassroots climate activist Matthew Edissary. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Stephen. It's fantastic to be with you to talk about the recent project of us. Thank you. Of course. So... By way of introduction, maybe you can just tell us about how you both became interested in the project in the first place. 
I've been doing this participatory filmmaking for the past 20 years. I'm originally from India and I've made films with refugee communities, with queer communities and with Dalits, the people from the oppressed caste in the system of, I mean, in the caste system in India. So I've been working across genres and lens, made fiction, documentaries, experimental films, but most of it are very participatory in nature. And I've been working with communities and it was just not the film. It's the way of showing solidarity to the communities whom I respect and whom I get inspired with. That's my art practice. And I came here in 2022 to complete my master's in film at York University. And I continued to stay here. And then I had a visit to Brazil uh, uh, on invitation by my very close friend, Shaji, who's a climate warrior there. And he was the one who introduced uh, Kilambola communities to me because he's been working. He's also an Indian, but now a Brazilian. He's been working with Kilambola communities for almost more than three decades. And that's how I got introduced to the communities and their history, their resilience. Everything was so inspiring. So I kept going back in a year. And then I met Matthew in one of my screenings here. He's also from India, my neighbor state, Kerala. So we met and then I got introduced to his work and he's been doing a lot of significant grassroots work in climate. And then we thought like, let's just like, you know, do this because the community participatory filmmaking is, it's about being with the community, being their voice and get it going, like in terms of visibility, in terms of like what we got. I mean, the inspiration I got, I wanted to be spread across the world. And that's, that's the point that connected both of us. So, yeah. Yeah, with, my, with me, I have been involved with climate activism ever since I moved to Canada. And before that, I have a background in social work. So I've been involved with a different capacity in different parts of the world. And eventually I moved to Canada and then I have been working with climate action, grassroots level climate action movements, uh, nonviolent direct action, mostly art-based climate action movements. Because for me, the important point is to make sure that this message is being spread to a larger number of people considering the emergency that we are in. And I think that urgency is missing in most of the work that I see around, especially coming from South India. I'm from Kerala in South India, and we are currently experiencing climate change. You know, our monsoon patterns have changed. Our summers have changed. You know, it's just floods and droughts. You know, it's not even monsoon and summers. So we are actually going through the climate emergency right now. And I think it's urgent for people to realize that it is happening and it's not something that's going to happen in the future, like many of us believe in this part of the world. So that's how I got involved with a lot of nonviolent direct action movements in Canada. And, you know, I've been working through that. And I also organize with social justice movements working against hate politics, specifically in the Indian diaspora. And that's how I got connected to Lena in one of her screenings. She's also actively involved in that space. And then we had a discussion and, you know, like we had this talk about how indigenous people, especially uh, who are at the forefront of this climate emergency, are facing the brunt of it, you know, and which they are completely not, not fair on them, right? Like they are not, not supposed to be going through that. They are the least, like they, they are the ones who are actually producing the least amount of carbon and living harmoniously with the nature. But unfortunately, they are the first people who are at the forefront of this climate emergency. And we wanted to kind of somehow put that message across. And again, there is this issue between the global north and the global south, how it is being impacted in the global south is a lot more drastic than how it is being seen in the global north. And also, I think we think that there is definitely a point where, you know, the global north had to take that responsibility for projects that have credible impact on the ground level in global south, especially concerning to the climate emergency that we're facing. So these were some of the things that kind of started the discussion. And then Lena mentioned about the Kilimbolas and we felt, you know, this was the perfect place to start because it's Amazon and it affects us all, right? Whatever happens in Amazon is 
of global concern. And we thought this is definitely the best first step. And this is not going to be just a one project thing. We are planning different projects with different indigenous communities around the world who are at the front lines of climate emergency. So that is the project that we have envisioned. And it is going to be a participatory model because we want to also make it a um, anti-capitalistic method of filmmaking and also something where we are giving space for these voices to come across because we believe that is not happening right now. And this is where we envision this project. And these indigenous communities will be co-creators of these projects along with us. And we are planning for continued engagement even after the cinema. We're planning for continued engagement with the community for a sustainable livelihood or a new future and a few better where, where we are learning from them as well in terms of how the climate resilience is happening from their spaces. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much. And so you have mentioned participatory filmmaking a few times, and I wonder if you can explain what, what that looks like. Back in India, I live with communities and hear their stories, do interviews, write the script with them. The latest film of mine is called Madhati, Madhati and Anfari Tale. It's about the unseeable, like, you know, the Dalits among Dalits, the communities who are considered impure to be seen, you know. Yeah, it's, past, uh, it's, it's part of the system of slavery, the caste slavery in India. And this is the first ever time like a film is made on them because they are invisibilized. And it was like a very empowering journey for me to live with them, to learn their stories and struggles and transport the story into the, the medium of film. So that now their story is documented because even their existence remain undocumented. They are not even in the census in India. Like nobody knows how many people are there because they are considered unseeable. So they're totally erased from the eye of the governance. So that's how I made that story, like lived with them, wrote with them, and they were participating in the production. And they were also through, it, it's, it's like a movement, the people movement. And we were bringing the artist community and the community whose stories to be told together in one space. And there is this very intense conversations going on. And we meet at a point and then we get the story told. So in Sarakura, the same thing, the, I followed the same process. We had activists like Shaji and uh, activists and academic like um, Lucy Neji. So they are already working with the communities. They are running water schools at the uh, Kilambolas, um, the Kilambos uh, with the communities. So they took us there and that's how we got access to the communities and repeatedly listening to their stories, visiting them and hearing them inspired me so much that like I wanted the story to be told along with them. So I think hours of interviews with the uh, I mean, there were like 11 kilombos uh, in the fed, in, in the Santaram. That's a place in Amazon where we were working. And we almost visited like six, seven kilombos, met the leaders, met the community, spoke to people. And they were also excited about this whole making of Kilambola cinema. Because see, in Brazil, Brazil is huge. In Brazil, like... Uh, uh, Brazil has the largest black population outside Africa, and there are more than 50% of population in Brazil. And out of that, more than 100 million of blacks, 1.3 million were Kilambolas. And Kilambolas were the fugitives of the colonial slave trade. And they are, they are always seen as rebels. So their existence is always challenged by the systemic raci racial discrimination. And the colonization, though, the in, in like in 1888, the slavery was abolished, but still it took 100 years for them. Like in only in 1988, they got this legit identity of indigenous. They, they got the indigenous identity. So their land, their territory is always challenged. So, I mean, their the how their entire identity is rooted in resistance 
and how they continue to resist. Like they resisted colonial slavery, they resisted racial discrimination, they are resisting many powers, and now they are resisting, I would say, like Brazilian police, the state discrimination, and the extractive capitalist industries. And they are in the front line fighting climate catastrophes. Like this year, they hit the historical drought. The record was like really low, the levels of river. So there were wildfires. The landscape is getting reshaped because of this harsh climate changes. So the territories which they fought is now like it's falling because of this climate catastrophes. So their resilience is something I think I, I mean, as an artist, I felt that's a hope for the future. That's where I have all the learnings. So this film is, is, is it will be you know very small attempt of bringing that resilience, giving that resilience a shape of a message so that like it gets across to all the communities across the world to learn from them. Yeah. And just getting back onto the question of participatory cinema, we, while we envisioned this, we also wanted to make sure that this is a platform where there would be a collaboration between the Global North and Global South. That is another way of participatory cinema, like we said, you know, because there are a lot of the organizations and very concerned citizens in Global North, like with my experience here in Canada, in the climate space, I do realize there are a lot of people who are very concerned. There are a lot of organizations, a lot of movements happening here. How do we connect this with the people who are experiencing climate change, right? How do we experience it with the communities who are also doing similar movements in Global South? So these are the things that we thought would be able to connect through this medium of cinema. And we wanted to go to Global South and, you know, the countries where this is actually happening, especially with the indigenous communities, work with them in terms of our initial idea is to create workshops for the community. So we would go there, we would have eminent filmmakers, technicians come there. We would have filmmaking workshops or artistic workshops where we would be empowering the communities in terms of these newer mediums where they can pro provide a platform for themselves and then also be part of this film that we are creating, right? So we want them to be part of co-creators of this cinema as well. So that is one way of participatory. Another one is, again, as audiences, you know, we have started a GoFundMe page where we are getting funds from people all around the world, you know, like even from India, we have people who are donating in dollars. You know, that is a huge thing for us. And it's something that we are in awe of and also like have huge respect for. So in terms of how people are contributing to this project, and that is also participatory a way of filmmaking, right? We are actually getting money from people who are fundraising for us through GoFundMe. And lastly, but not at all the least, this whole climate crisis, it's actually causing a lot of anxiety for people around the world. And I believe, we believe for this particular project, when we are actually putting it across, you know, it is actually a way for people to connect through this medium of cinema where, you know, it is addressing people who are living on this front lines and people who are in places, other places like Global North or, you know, like in other parts of the world where people are experiencing similar climate catastrophes and climate issues, how they can connect emotionally through the medium of cinema. That also becomes participatory. So it is in different aspects we are looking at this as a participatory model. I think also bringing academics, artists and activists and the community in one space and also connecting the audience participate in this whole process through this crowdfunding initiative, we are already creating a movement, right? So there is a very intense inter intercultural dialogue that is going on. And this conversation is what I believe in as a filmmaker, as someone who also believes in nonviolent action. For me, nonviolent action is making films, writing poems, right? So it is bringing all these stakeholders in one space and talk to each other and learn from each other and inspire each other. So here we are, you know, it's an intersectional movement for climate justice, for racial justice, and also like, you know, cultural revival and Black consciousness. So this is where we are all meeting. And this is such a beautiful point to get connected and take this forward. 
Awesome. So you, I think you actually answered a couple of my future questions in that question. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to, to ask you, what do you hope people get out of this film? What's the message you're hoping to convey? This film will be um, the story of the Kilambola community. The community feels they've, they are invisibilized, they are never heard, and they are never valued. So this will be their voice. And as artists, we will be the medium for their voice to be heard. I think that is the first step because I believe, I mean, I believe my art practice as an exercise of decolonization. So we are kind of, yeah, I mean, decolonization is not just about deconstructing the dominant paradigm, the, the colonial narratives. It is also reconstructing a narrative from the you know standpoint of the marginalized communities so this narrative will be about celebrating their history of resistance will be about being proud of their identity and will be about sharing their wisdom on fighting this climate and get the story across so this is what I think this is the place I am coming from, and this is what is connecting all of us in participating in this movement. Yes, and just like we mentioned in the earlier section as well, you know, it is an intersectional project. So that itself is what is important about this project, I believe, because it has so many of elements coming together. It is interdisciplinary as well. So we have academicians, researchers, artists, activists, everybody coming together. So it is interdisciplinary and intersectional in terms of that. And also in terms of the importance of Amazon, uh, particularly, because what happens in Amazon is going to affect us all. It has significant impacts on the climate systems and the patterns around the globe. And it directly impacts even here in North America and even in South, South Asia and in other parts of the world, you know, it has direct consequences. So that is something that we wanted to highlight and also how historic this drought was. We were able to see it over there, right? Like when we went over there, the whole place was clouded with the wildfire smokes around the Amazon. You know, that's something not like people are used to, you know, so much of smoke that is very difficult to even see things, even breathe. You know, it has been very drastic. And it has also kind of created a lot of issues within the endangering the wildlife. Also, the indigenous communities have been completely cut off because in Amazon, the rivers are the highways. You know, they don't have roads. It's rivers that are making these communities accessible. So if it is a drought, they do not have ways to even get their basic amenities, you know. So in these communities, because they are very reliant on the markets and things like that in the smaller towns or in the smaller cities. They come by boat, they get their essentials, they go back to their communities, or they have somebody who's designated who's doing that for all of the communities. And with the drought, there have been many communities who have been completely cut off. There has to be having rescue missions to drop food and drinking water. You know, like even though they live on the banks of Amazon, they are not able to drink the water because of the pollution and things going on over there. So it is a very drastic situation and it is happening in Amazon is what's worrying more, which has a majority of the fresh water of our world. Still, people are not able to get drinking water. So these kind of issues we see globally with indigenous communities, even here in Canada, right? like the drinking water is definitely an issue even here. So these are the things that we wanted to highlight and connect as well. So that's why we are thinking of it as a global project. And we are not going to just end this with this Brazil project or the Amazon project. We want to do more projects in different parts of the world including North America, in terms of this issue of climate crisis and how it is significantly impacting the indigenous communities and frontline communities around the world. And stories are the powerful medium, right? Like, I mean, you say anything as a story, it connects. It's better than any other expression. As a storyteller, I believe in that. And this story of Kilambola communities should be urgently told. And this is going to uplift so many communities across the world because they are facing the same kind of struggles and, you know, same kind of history of resistance. So story is something I believe in which would connect 
people across the cultures, across the languages, across the racial histories, and across the global movements. So this Sarakura will be the story of uh, Kilambola resilience, which I see as a hope for future. Amazing. And so how can folks support this work? Okay, great. So definitely, like I mentioned, this the GoFundMe is the first way you can support this project because we want to make sure that this is reaching as many as people. And it's not just about the amount of money that you can donate. How much ever you can contribute, make a huge impact. We want to get more people involved. So even if you can pay whatever you can, that is perfectly good. We want to make this a movement. So we have organizations that we are reaching out to. So any organization who are interested to support our work, please do reach out to us. We also have the website. It's www.sarakuradafilm.com. Uh, you can reach out to us over there. You also have information about the project. That is one way we, you can support. You can share the materials that we have on our social media to make sure that we are reaching out to as many as people that we can. Maybe you yourself might not be able to donate or a lot of money or, you know, whatever you can, but you might have a lot of networks or connections that you might be able to help us and share us, share this project with. So please do that and help us make this film. At this point, we really feel it is an urgent time and very pivotal time to make sure that this is happening right now. And so these are some of the ways that you can support. Apart from that, we are also inviting volunteers to come on board and to work with us for this project, especially if you are, if you know and speak Portuguese, that is one of the things that we had a huge challenge in Brazil because both of us don't speak a word of Portuguese. And it was a very interesting journey in terms of getting these things done, even without the language. So, and so we are definitely looking for people who are Portuguese and who can speak and write Portuguese, that would be of great help. But even without Portuguese, if you think that there is some way that you can contribute and be donate your time and effort, please do reach out to us. We are definitely looking for more support and help in terms of social media and you know other ways that we can fundraise specifically, because that's our major challenge right now. We are looking for raising funds for this project. And these are some of the ways that we can, you can support us. If you have any ideas of fundraising, please reach out to us. We will be able to support. We are also thinking of um, having uh, fundraising screenings of Lena's earlier films in a way to raise funds for this project. So if you have a space or if your organization has a space to screen these films and do a fundraiser for this project, please do reach out. That's another way that you can support. So we can do creative ways. Um, to connect and network and work together. So donate to GoFundMe once again. I'll keep on saying that shamelessly. So uh, thank you so much for whoever has supported us till now and we are looking for more support. So thank you so much. Awesome. And so it's our tradition on the show to give a, a last word to our guests. And so I'm going to throw back to you in half a second to sort of leave our our listeners with something. But before I do, this has been... The folks behind Sarakura, the film, this is poet and filmmaker Lena Manimikle and grassroots climate activist Matthew Edessary. Thank you both so much for being here. And yeah, any last thoughts? In my experience as an artist, telling the stories of the communities from the margin have been a profound learning experience, profound healing experience. And, you know, films are the way I show solidarity to the uh, moments and struggles of the grassroots people, right? So Serakura is also conceived as a strong show of solidarity of a group of artists, activists, academicians, and climate warriors. It is a show of solidarity to stand with them and, you know, to be the medium of their voice and to learn from them. So this is one story which has to be told urgently and we stand by that and we are connected by that very strong belief and the, the faith that this will take us towards a hopeful future. So I want you all to participate in this, you know, by means, by kind, by contribution, by talent and by moral support. So this is a people's movement, not just a film that is produced, but this is a very important people participatory movement of all the stakeholders coming together and take the 
indigenous knowledge as a space to share and to go forward and to become responsible ancestors. Yeah, I think Lena mentioned it perfectly. So I would just like to wrap it up by saying that, you know, we, we through this project, want to shed lights on the unique identities, habitats, and the resilience of communities who are at the front lines of climate emergency and create a global south, global north partnership through this project. And one thing that we kind of missed out was the COP30 meeting is actually happening in Brazil and Prada, which is in the state that we are doing this project. So this is happening in 2025. So the COP30 is happening in Brazil in 2025 in the same state. So we want to create this movement, which can actually have impacts on the ground level. Uh, and this is something we are very excited about as well, how we can transform this into already we are having a movement with so many people supporting us and GoFundMe and otherwise with their time and effort. So we want to create this and snowball this into a larger movement towards 2025 so that we can have a global impact and a, you know, a real impact in terms of how this issue of global crisis and especially with the perspective of indigenous communities are being looked at in terms of the climate emergency. So these are some of the things that we wanted to kind of wrap up with. And again, please donate to our GoFundMe page. Uh, we are really looking out for support if you want to volunteer anyways or uh, share our pro programs and things on social media, videos. We are coming out with a little bit of social media campaign. So hopefully you all can support that and share that as well on your social media pages. Do visit our website at uh, www.sarakuradafilm.com. I hope Stefan can post it on his pages as well so that, you know, you can also check that out. And once again, thank you so much for Stefan and the Green Majority for this amazing opportunity. And congrats on all the great work that you're doing in this space. And thank you for us for having us over here today. Thanks. And we are running Black History Month. Like it's, I mean, it's a perfect time to reflect on Black consciousness, Black pride, and to fight against racial discrimination and to be part of this uh, heroic climate resilience movement of indigenous communities. It is just not manifestation. It is solid action. It is time for solid action. So let us all come together. Thank you, Stefan, for this opportunity and space. It's not easy being green. It's not easy.